Hello everybody and welcome to the latest edition of Staging the Archive, the APGRD podcast. I'm Claire, I'm one of the archivists and it's a huge pleasure to be joined by Arlene Holmes-Henderson and May Musier today to discuss Classics in Communities, a project which uh, some of you will be very familiar with, um, some of you less so, so we'll be looking forward to introducing you to some of the amazing work um, that the project has been doing and, and continues to do. Um, as our item to kickstart this conversation, we have a library item, so uh, the volume entitled Forward with Classics, Classical Languages in Schools and Communities, co-edited by Arlene Ann May, as well as Stephen Hunt. Uh, we'll be diving into the details of that volume um, shortly. A quick introduction to both our guest speakers today. Uh, Arlene read classics at Hilders, Oxford, uh, before moving on to postgrad research at Harvard. She then returns to the UK to complete her PGCE at Trinity Cambridge and has a significant amount of experience in both teaching uh, at school level and working in universities. She also has a doctorate in education from the University of Glasgow. Uh, she now sits on a number of qualification advisory boards and curriculum design councils uh, and has recently gained more of an international remit as outreach officer for the Classical Association. It's also a huge pleasure to be joined by May, uh, who is currently Public Engagement Manager at Bodleian Libraries at the University of Oxford. Uh, she also has a significant amount of experience in, um, in education, particularly outreach work with higher education institutions and statutory bodies. Um, her academic background also tailors really nicely with this. Uh, she studied classical civilization and ancient history, went on to complete a PhD in Greek literature, and her particular area of focus is race and ethnicity in the ancient Greek novels. So a huge welcome to both of you. Hi, it's great uh, to be here. So um, I'll hand over to both of you in a moment. Um, as listeners to the podcast will be aware, we usually start by looking at a visual prompt, which then kickstarts the rest of the conversation. So I'll ask you both to cast your minds back to 2018 when your volume was published. Uh, so we're looking at the cover here. Um, and I must confess, I wasn't actually uh, familiar with the image selected, but uh, May tells me that there's a significance behind its selection. Yes, um, actually it might be down to our publisher, Bloomsbury, who suggested um, the idea. I think uh, there were several images. Yeah, so we chose that one because, you know, it, it sort of inspired teaching and uh, the sort of nurturing aspect of uh, Kieron, who was a very famous um, tutor in the ancient world. He was a centaur um, and this image represented um, him teaching Achilles, the, the Greek hero. Um, so we decided that actually <laughs> um, out of all the sort of images that we had, um, that would be actually quite relevant um, because it's, it, it kind of fed into the sort of teaching but in a nurturing way. Um, and we were thinking more of like reaching out to, you know, sort of different communities um, in a nurturing way. So um, I think we decided that would probably be the best image um, than all the other ones. I can't actually remember the other ones unless Arlene can remember, but, but that one was, you know, one that jumped out at us. 
I remember we were given some very brightly colored images. Some were quite garish. Yes. Um, and I think we thought that the color palette of this one was altogether more attractive. And having an image that represented teaching and learning was very important to us because the book is about innovative approaches to teaching and learning classical studies in the 21st century. So um, the cover of a book, I think, needs to indicate what is on the inside. So this fresco does a really good job of showing people that it's about teaching and learning, I think. So that's why we went with this one. And who was your um, ideal audience for this? You know, have you, um, did you have a particular, uh, particular person in mind or a particular community in mind that you thought would, would benefit? When we envisaged the project, I think we wanted to base it in sort of academic research work. However, our um, audience would be predominantly non-academic within the higher education sector. So reaching out really to, um, you know, to schools, teachers, um, community leaders, um, you know, just just people who perhaps would not normally be kind of within the framework of higher education. Um, so, you know, that was at the beginning, our kind of core audiences and um, particularly teachers from primary and secondary schools. Yeah, and I guess it may be quite helpful now to sketch a little bit about what the aims of the project are. So back in 2014, there was a curriculum policy change in England and Wales where um, for the first time it uh, was thought to be um, acceptable possibly even advisable for uh, children aged 6 to 11 that's key stage 2 um, to learn uh, ancient languages so Latin and Greek were explicitly written into the languages curriculum at Key Stage 2 as languages which were thought suitable for study alongside modern languages. And so at that point, the Classics and Communities project was born, founded by me, um, and the project had twin aims. Firstly, to offer training because we were acutely aware that there were many teachers in primary schools educating children aged 6 to 11 who themselves had not had the opportunity to study Latin and Greek at school. So great, we've got some policy support, but in practice, we can't enact that policy because that the knowledge is simply not there. So Classics and Communities um, offered a number of training sessions, workshops for teachers in order to teach Latin in the morning, Greek in the afternoon, um, followed up by uh, some professional mentoring and support to uh, make that policy change a reality for teachers in primary schools across England and Wales. And in fact, we extended it to Northern Ireland and Scotland too, because we did not want young people across other parts of the UK to miss out. But secondly, and this is where I come in, um, we also had a research arm to the project. So what we found was that school leaders would say, hmm, ancient languages are now available as an option in the key stage two languages policy why would we introduce latin on our curriculum where is the evidence so the research arm of the project has been running a five-year longitudinal study 
to collect data in order to investigate what impact does the learning of ancient languages have on children's cognitive development. So I was recruited uh, by the Classics and Communities Project as a research fellow in classics education in 2014 and um, I have been working with me uh, to run those training sessions for teachers across the country but also um, to design and lead this research study in classics education so that we have an evidence base with which to help school leaders and school teachers understand what are the benefits of ancient languages beyond the anecdotal evidence which has been in circulation for decades. And, and I was just thinking about the, so the origin of the project. Um, thanks Arlene for giving me all the credit. Uh, it was, <laughs> I have to say, it was uh, two further members uh, who came up with the initial proposal. Evelyn Brach from Swansea University and Lorna Robinson from the Iris Project. So it, we saw, you know, what the horizon looked like with the changes that were coming in in 2014. And this was, you know, our kind of planning meeting in 2013 um, to thinking, well, we need to do something because uh, clearly we've got this really great opportunity to bring classics through in some sense the back door um, but um, you know we need to think about upskilling um, school teachers this is a great opportunity but we do need um, some support for this and who better than Oxford to lead on it for example um, because I do have a very strong voice uh, in these sort of things um, and um, yeah so we had that initial discussion with Evelyn and Lorna in a pub on a summer's day <laughs> in 2013. Um, and then it sort of spiraled really from that. I think um, the most important aspect was that um, to recognize that we weren't the sort of ideal candidates to push forward um, the sort of research side and the kind of um, taking on the teaching, the training te um, uh, teachers. We needed an expert and that's when Arlene came in and um, she kind of blew everyone away in that interview <laughs> uh, with myself and Felix Budeman and Anna Clark and um, we thought she was absolutely perfect uh, to take on that project um, and she's done absolutely amazing work since then um, and then you know with the uh, contribution by the Iris project you know we started working with them in terms of data gathering but also other you know sort of children's um, Latin literacy programs such as the uh, Latin program um, based in London um, so we started really scoping other partners to work with um, and Cambridge University came on board um, they supported us uh, with financial aid. It wasn't much, <laughs> um, but you know, that's how the project really survived by not very much. You know, it was that kind of initial uh, money from the university, Oxford University, um, uh, through, you know, sort of things like the John Fell Fund, Cambridge University, and then we had great contribution by Steve Hunt from the Faculty of Education in Cambridge and he brought, you know, he came onto the project and sort of him and Arlene really kind of um, pushed the project onto the sort of um, second and third stage. So, so even though it was quite a small project in terms of monetary framework, it attracted a lot of attention um, and our first initial 
conference, we were surprised by the response that we had. We expected it to be quite so, you know, not, not just regional, um, but actually within the UK. And when we started getting inquiries internationally, we thought, oh gosh, this is, this is a surprise, but also a fantastic opportunity to see what the landscape was, the landscape of classics um, internationally. And so that's how we framed the first initial conference as an international conference. And that really was a springboard um, for the international focus of this. And then since then we had a second and third conference um, and um, that brought in itself wider international, I suppose, awareness. Yeah, and people who are looking at the contents of the book will see that we have contributors from Australia, from Brazil, from across Europe, from South Africa, from Ireland, and following up the international collaboration we did for the book, I have had two subsequent visiting professorships, one with the University of Canterbury Christchurch in New Zealand, where I did a collaborative research project on the role of classics in the curriculum in New Zealand schools and in British schools, and have a publication out in a New Zealand uh, book uh, about that. And I have another collaborative research project following on from an Oxford Africa project visiting professorship with the University of Stellenbosch. Um, and just last summer, me and I uh, worked with uh, a group of students and their professor from the Netherlands, from the Oikos project, um, who looked to classics communities as an example of good practice in classics education, research and outreach, looking to inform the reform of classics education and teacher training in the Netherlands. So um, May is quite right. Classics and Communities is a project which has been run on a shoestring budget. <laughs> um, unfortunately, classics education as a field um, is not really recognised, I would say, either by classics, because I feel like you know, we're not really recognised as being proper classics and um, we're not really recognised by education because classics exists very much on the periphery. So um, I think classics education is absolutely a growing field and even in the years since I've done my doctorate, um, I've now examined people's doctorates in classics education. So I, you know, there still aren't 10 of us in the world who have done doctorates in classics education, but you know, we're, we're approaching 10. Um, and so I think we are a growing field, but you know, we're still drastically underfunded. And so for a project who, um, which has attracted not a lot of funding, I think we can be proud of the amount of impact we've had, not just in the UK, but in increasingly internationally. Yeah, sort of outreach in its truest sense, really, <laughs> what, you're, what you're describing. Um, your point about uh, international work um, is quite an interesting one. Obviously, there's a lot of, as you say, um, even though in terms of funding, perhaps classics and education is a, a niche concern, there does seem to be a, quite a lot of um, hand-wringing about the, the state of, of classics teaching in Britain. You know, our sort of current prime minister, unfortunately, has been <laughs> part of that. Um, but in your, in your work and in your um, consequent um, sort of uh, job opportunities following, following on from the, the publication of the book, it's sort of a risk of making generalisations 
are there particular national curricula that you feel are addressing the situation well or more admirably than others like have you noticed any patterns in in how uh, classics teaching is approached? So I think there are a couple of national curricula which are leading the way in terms of providing democratic access to the study of Greeks and Romans in schools. One is Denmark, where the study of the Greeks and Romans appears from the research I've done at, to be available to students in the secondary phase as, as a mainstream subject. Equally, in New Zealand, classical studies is recognised as an English-rich subject. So just from a policy perspective, students who are a bit fed up of studying English in the final phases of secondary educa education can substitute assessment in English for another English-rich subject. And many of them choose classical studies. And so classical studies is taught in a huge number of state secondary schools across New Zealand. Um, and I, I've written about this, I've published about this, and I, I, I did look <laughs> to New Zealand as, a, as an example of really good practice in the learning and teaching, particularly of classical studies, so the access of the ancient world in English. However, um, earlier this year, uh, the New Zealand Qualification and Assessment Authority scaled back their supportive assessment um, in classical studies and particularly in Latin. So I'm a little bit disappointed that it would appear that at, at the lower levels of assessment, that support seems to be waning a little bit. So that, that does concern me. But yes, those, those two areas, I think, definitely are worthy of admiration. There are, of course, other national curricula where the study of the ancient world are freely available to all, all students in certain types of schools. So if you look at um, the German gymnasium system or the Dutch gymnasium system or in Italy, the Liceo Classico, of course, in those, in those schools, um, all students have access to the study of usually Latin and Greek um, and possibly the access, uh, access to the study of the ancient world in some form, whether it's a discrete subject or whether it's uh, um, an addendum to the study of Latin and, Latin and Greek languages. So the book which I'm currently writing <laughs> um, will uh, include some international comparative research on exactly this topic. That sounds very exciting. You'll have to get back in touch when that's uh, <laughs> nearing publication. We can have you back again. But um, I was interested when you discussed the idea of um, classical studies as a, a sort of more accessible, accessible option. Um, and there might, there might well be people listening who, who work in schools and are interested in introducing classical subjects. And classical studies is obviously more feasible for c considering staffing constraints in certain schools. Um, obviously, there is, um, there is a bit of a a bit of a snobbery, um, particularly at uh, university level, about which path somebody's taken to uh, to approach their their classics degree, um, and that kind of classical studies versus the sort of um, yeah kind of tr traditional uh, sort of gentleman's Latin and Greek education is is often held up. I guess an, an obvious sort of concern is that uh, this would then lead somebody to think, well, why bother? Um, which I don't personally think they should, but um, what what might your your response to that be? You know, if if you can't do it in the original, why why do it at all? 
Wow, what a question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's confirm this is not my thought. This is just <laughs> something I've had levelled at me. So I'm, I'm uh, Well, I guess I can only speak from my own experience. Mm. And um, I suppose I'm the perfect example, really, of somebody who never really had uh, opportunities to study classics at school. Uh, I went to a secondary school in South London, uh, in, La in the borough of Lambeth, and um, it was extremely poor school. And so, you know, sort of getting uh, good GCSE results was a, certainly an achievement. Um, and so for me, the only way that I was introduced to classics was through myth um, and through my own kind of extracurricular learnings. Um, and it wasn't until college, sixth form college, that um, uh, I started doing Egyptology as an extracurricular activity. So then I was, took on A-level English, politics and history with the view to do law uh, in university. That's one of the three subjects that perhaps immigrant families always tend to, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of move towards. Um, so I didn't really have an opportunity even in college to think about classics until English um, when I was studying, uh, you know, to set texts in English and we came across Tom Stoppard's plays, particularly in Arcadia. Um, and that kind of, you know, sort of opened the world for me. Um, and then there was an opportunity to go to a uh, classical excursion trip to Greece, um, which, you know, I begged my mum to, you know, provide the funds. Um, and I had an eight amazing days in Greece. Um, I came back and I started thinking about classics instead of, you know, doing law. Um, and I ended up in Swansea University doing a classical civilization degree, which, you know, sort of gave me an opportunity to choose the languages as an option. So I started off with Greek and then in my master's, I went to choose Latin. Um, and, you know, I studied ancient history for my master's and it wasn't until PhD that basically I kind of concentrated on the languages. And I think, you know, it was, I knew I was different. Uh, so, so there wasn't, uh, you know, in a room full of 60 students in the lecture hall, I was visibly different. Um, but I was also different in the sense that I didn't have classics in my background. However, I think it was a, an incredibly nurturing department in Swansea University. Um, and so I was able to look beyond that. Um, and, you know, since then I've, I've started thinking about how classics has actually made me get in touch with my own cultural heritage. Um, I'm from a Ethiopian Eritrean background and um, it started making me think about how um, ancient Ethiopia has kind of contribute to the greater human civilization um, and the kind of connectivity between Greece and Rome and Persia and Northeast Africa. Um, and in some ways, the more I got into the Greek novels, the more I got the opportunity to see those connectivities. Um, and I suppose that kind of made me realize, you know, sort of living in the UK with dual identity and particularly being of an ethnic minority background, um, you know, sort of having this subject, which is 
predominantly white and middle class <laughs> um, and usually kind of males centered uh, and very Eurocentric. Um, it just somehow the texts themselves um, opened up the world around me um, and I, it, was a, it was a fantastic way to see the connections between my own background and the Greeks and Romans and having realizing that the modern <laughs> teaching of classics is problematic um, and the best way that we can try and move on from this is actually to have you know the sort of interconnectivity more um, pronounced um, to not concentrate purely on the languages so that you could alienate um, a lot of interested students but to also think about you know actually the, the ancient world belongs to everybody and you know people can identify with any and every aspect of it um, and I don't think that comes across very well in the modern setting particularly in the European setting in schools so you know I spend a lot of my time now um, talking about ancient and modern comparisons but also about empowering people particularly from a non-white um, uh, backgrounds, uh, those who've been to state schools, etc., um, to say, look, let's look at the ancient world in, its, in all of its glory and faults and connect these with other parts of the world. Because if I can do it, and that was when I was going to university in the 90s and early 2000s, when it was so much harder, then anyone can do it. It's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Thank you, May. Um, and yes, I think... Just add to sorry. that. Yeah, that please. I am an, a huge ambassador for classical languages. I was lucky enough to study Latin at school and Greek on a summer school. Um, and I will always defend their place in the school curriculum. But I fundamentally oppose this dichotomy between classical languages and the study of the ancient world in translation. And I think that we have to move away from this idea that there is more merit in studying one rather than the other, because that is fundamentally untrue. And I challenge anyone who believes that classical languages are in any way better or harder uh, than the study of classical civilization and ancient history at GCSE or A-level to look at the specification documents for classical civilization and ancient history. Have a look at what it is students of those courses actually have to study. Look at past papers. I guarantee you that having done that process, you will come away re-educated. We need to put this to bed. Let's move on. Classical languages, ancient history, and classical civilization are all meritorious. We need to get young people access to the study of the ancient world in some form, if that is what they wish. Let's work together collaboratively across the sector to make that possible. Absolutely right. I, I can't um, add anything more to what Arlene has actually said. I think it should be, if we're truly thinking of democratizing classics that's the only way that we could do it is to step away from our own little kind of um fiefdoms and territories and pitting each other oh yes you went to oxbridge and you didn't go to 
Oxbridge or you didn't do languages and you did classic Civ. Um, it's just really, really just um, taking a back step, really, and thinking, you know, I when I when I was starting this project and also working in the classics department in Oxford University, um, I did realise that actually as a classics community we can come together. Um, and because I suppose our subject has been on the periphery and on the back step for so long um, that we have weathered the storm a bit better than other subjects um, by being on the periphery and <laughs> constantly on the attack, you know, being attacked um, for the, its lack of relevance in the modern world and so forth. So, you know, this filled me with so much positivity that we can actually work together regardless of um, our kind of educational sort of upbringings. Um, but there is still some really hard mountains to climb sometimes and it feels as if that we're constantly, you know, just battling each other. And I think there are much bigger things to, to battle. Yeah, definitely agreed. And this, this conversation has been a wonderful breath of fresh air which uh, is perhaps indicative of, <laughs> of how many more mountains there are uh, to climb and um, I'm sure a lot of a lot of people listening to this as as uh, Giovanna and myself are reception uh, studies people and if reception teaches you uh, anything it's that there are lots of different voices exploring the classics in lots of different ways it's just that they've not necessarily always been amplified um, as you say alongside quite a sort of narrow view of what it means to have a legitimate um, interaction with with these texts. Uh, so yeah, anything that, that can be done to to further that is is wonderful. And yeah, I've just been looking at the, the title of the book and it's yeah not so much classics in communities as classics as a community in this particular um, argument. Um, this is perhaps a really good time to start looking uh, forward. So you've spoken about the the state of Kind of classics education as you as you initially encountered it uh, you described the the 2018 publication as a sort of legacy of, of the work that had been done up until that point um, so i guess the natural progression is having having addressed these classical cynics and and having um put the work in and gathered the data uh, where where is the project currently moving where do you see your next um your next mountains to climb so um, I'm still gathering data uh, because it's really important when doing educa any educational research study to have enough data for the study to stand up to scrutiny and to be robust enough uh, that you can uh, extrapolate findings which can be communicated with a certain amount of confidence. So yeah, the, the data collection and analysis is ongoing, but uh, I'm really pleased that I have now established uh, an official partnership called a research and public policy partnership with the Department for Education. So that means I will be working from now until July 2021 with officials in the Humanities and Languages Curriculum Policy Team in the Department for Education to share my uh, research uh, data and findings to date, specifically around the learning and teaching of ancient languages in schools uh, across England and Wales. And that is to help 
officials in the Department for Education understand what is happening in terms of ancient language teaching, um, but also to hopefully move towards more effective policy enactment and policy delivery and a better, let's say, better communication between policymakers and those working in the field of ancient language education about uh, key issues facing learning and teaching. Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited that um, Arlene's hard work uh, is absolutely paying off. Um, you know, obviously, when we first recruited her, we were, as I said, she, she kind of blew the competition away <laughs> at the interview stage. And then we had no idea that um, she had so much um, expertise and, um, you know, she was an extremely motivated person. So in a way, in the last few years, it's really kind of been Arlene's work rather than any of uh, us. You know, we've sort of just, I've started being in the background, um, but uh, she's really pushed the um, project forward um, so much, you know, more than we could possibly have envisaged. Um, and I suppose that's the beauty of it, that, you know, it was a very kind of organic project. We may have had a few uh, kind of, framework to begin with but we never really envisaged that it would ever be to this point where we are having direct dialogue with um, the department for education and you know impacting policy and you know Arlene probably won't tell you but um, uh, she put forward an application for the vice chancellor's awards uh, in education at Oxford University and the project won so I'm um, absolutely kind of delighted that her work has been recognized on a university level too as well as internationally um, it's just taking the next step in trying to perhaps sustain and build a legacy and making sure that change does happen but we can't do that on our own I mean you know <laughs> uh, you know we've also worked outside the project in order to keep the project going you know whilst I was <laughs> had a full-time job and trying to do it within my job Steve has a full-time job um, and Arlene has other you know kind of um, jobs constraints on her time and so forth so this is well, when we were discussing about the kind of monetary stuff you know it being on a shoestring it's also been in terms of staff resources um, us doing this outside our own kind of core um, activities uh, so you can now imagine if we actually had some proper funding <laughs> of what we could have possibly achieved. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether we would have been, we could have achieved more than what is now that we have achieved. I think um, uh, despite all the constraints, we've managed to achieve more than what I think is, is like an impossible sort of dream. So. So much of the work now um, and the last few years has certainly been because of Arlene's motivation. Um, and, you know, that's sort of kudos to her. That, um, yeah, involvement at policy level is, as you say, a fantastic opportunity and so exciting to hear um, how that's moving. Uh, an additional question, perhaps looking at a more individual level uh, so as somebody who also went to a state school and did the Greek in their lunch break, um, I know the value of having any support um in in your school 
So if there's anybody listening who's keen to explore the introduction of a classical subject, whether that be a language or something like class of ancient history in their school, um, what practical steps would you invite them to, to take to get that rolling? So I recommend that they visit the Classics and Communities website because on our website we have a guide to getting started and that is specifically designed for teachers who want to introduce the teaching of classics at primary or a secondary level. So that will take them through the steps. If they are looking for funding, they should contact Classics for All and May is a trustee of Classics for All. So I'll let her say a little bit more about that. Um, yes, so I recently became a, uh, well, I say recently, I think uh, last year, uh, one of the new trustees for Classics for All. This is a national charity for classics in schools and Classics for All gives grants to state schools so that their students can benefit from the introduction of Latin, Greek, classical civilization and ancient history. Um, and it's been going for over over 10 years and supported over 800 odd schools. Um, so you can imagine how many students have been impacted by um, their intervention. So if you are looking for financial aid, there is um, the, the bigger classes for charity, but there are also um, other charitable bodies uh, who can support with small to medium grants as well but you can find all the information on our website brilliant well thank you so much to both of you for a really fascinating and exciting uh, conversation we look forward to hearing your further further updates as i'm sure there will be many if listeners would like to get in touch with may or arlene uh, they're both on twitter uh, so arlene is uh, at dr arlene hh um, may is at dr underscore may musier uh, you can also get in touch with the project itself so on twitter at classics in com c-o-m-m uh, or facebook group classics in communities if um, anyone would like to check out the uh, book we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast as well um, as discussed published uh, by bloomsbury forward with classics classical languages in schools and communities published 2018 uh, thank Available you. Available in all good bookshops. And the APGRD library, <laughs> should oh, anyone wish to <laughs> consult a copy. Um, thank you so much to, to both of you. No, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation.